Thank you for downloading the following message from the Pickerington Church of Christ. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you walk with the Lord. For more information or to find additional resources, locate us on the web at pickeringtonchurch.org. Enjoy the message. If you haven't been with us, we're in the book of Isaiah. We are on part number 12. We've got just a few more to go, and we're going to have the book of Isaiah, at least for this session, tied up. And we're going to be in chapter 54, and I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles there. So I'm going to give you just a minute to turn your Bibles to Isaiah 54. But before we do our reading, you're going to need a little bit of historical context and then a little bit of personal context to see the weight of Isaiah 54. Isaiah up until this point has had a couple major movements in his book. The first 36 chapters, Isaiah is a preacher to his contemporaries. And he's warning them over and over and over, your indifference to God, even though you're religious, even though you perform all the rituals and worship God the right way, your indifference to his reality will lead you into dispersion, punishment. And he warns them and he warns them and he warns them. Chapter 37, 38, and 39 bring us into a picture of what's going to happen when the Assyrian king comes and threatens Israel and then God saves them from Assyria but Babylon would come later but chapter 40 to the end of the book chapter 66 is a portion of scripture where Isaiah writes knowing that future generations are going to read this and get hope from it when they are dispersed throughout the world in the Babylonian kingdom. Meaning, Babylon is going to come, take over Jerusalem and Judea. They're going to drag away hundreds and thousands and maybe millions of people into the rest of Babylonian captivity. And the rest of Isaiah's book is a message of hope. That something good will come. We just finished last week the portion of Isaiah where he, there's four major songs of the God's servant and God tells us through Isaiah about one of his servants a servant a single servant who's going to step into the world and deliver us from all the mess that we've made with our life for Israel and Judah it was their allegiances to false gods and their sent into dispersion for us it's the bondage to our sin that separates us from God. Isaiah 54 is the response to when you become aware of God's servant. It is a song, as you see the very first words, it's sing. It is a song in response to what is now true for God's people because of God's servant. That's the historical context. Here's the personal context, and then we're going to read the passage. I want you to think a little bit about this personally. You need some prep work for your heart. So what I want you to do is picture something that's been frustrating you lately. Maybe a task that you're not able to accomplish. Maybe it's a problem you're wanting to fix. Maybe it's a relationship that you've messed up that you don't know how to make right anymore. Maybe it's something you've wanted to do that you haven't been able to do. What's something that's been frustrating you? Or maybe I want you to picture somebody you envision to be an enemy of yours. Yes, an enemy. 
somebody that you see is holding you back or in your way somebody who is not letting you do the things that you want to do somebody that is making your life difficult that's reminding you constantly of your failures your inability somebody in your life that's blocking what you want to accomplish I want you to think about what makes you afraid I want you to think about what gives you shame this is personal I want you to think about what you hide from other people what you hide from God and maybe if you're brave enough this morning what you hide from yourself sin is what causes us to lack ability to break things that are not supposed to be broken and to be in a condition of shame and fear and anxiety and worry sin is the cause of all of that and God's servant Jesus Christ entered the world to destroy the work of Satan to eliminate sin and he's left us with the very last verse of Isaiah 54 says this here is the heritage of God's people God's servant here's what you have so I'm going to let God's word do better work than I can ever do. So I want you to be active listeners, but just, can everybody take a breath? Listen to Isaiah 54 in light of this preparation. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children who is married of her who is married says the Lord enlarge the place of your tent let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out do not hold back lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes for you will spread abroad to the right and to the left and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities fear not for you will not be ashamed be not confounded for you will not be disgraced for you will forget the your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more for your maker is your husband the Lord of hosts is his name the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer the God of the whole earth he is called for the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit like a wife of youth when she is cast off says your God for a brief moment I deserted you but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as before that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall depart from my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall be not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. O afflicted one, storm tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set my stones, set your stones in antimony, and lay your foundation with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of a gate and your your gates of carbuncles and all your walls of precious stones all your children shall be taught of the Lord and great shall be the peace of your children in righteousness you shall be established you shall be far from oppression for you shall not fear and from terror for it shall not come near you 
If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. And you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And their vindication from me, declares the Lord. God's people say amen to that, right? Let me tell you about marvelous grace. That's grace. This sermon is all about how marvelous grace is. The first thing you need to know about grace is the purpose for it. There's three pictures this text is built upon that tell us, remind us why we need grace. At the beginning, he tells us that we need grace, pardon me, that we need grace for things that we cannot do. You notice he talks about the woman who is barren. He says at the beginning there in verse 1, that we should sing, O barren one, who did not bear, and break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. You see, to be barren in the days in which Isaiah was writing was to bring great shame and reproach upon a woman and her family, to not be able to uh, reproduce, to have a heritage after them. And he's saying, listen, here's a picture of what you need. You have things in your life that you cannot do, that you lack the power and ability to accomplish. They frustrate you, they anger you, they cause you shame. And you, yes, even in your barren state, will bring forth because of me and you will sing. He says we need grace for that which we cannot do. The second picture says we need grace for that which we cannot fix. He then transitions to a picture of a wife and a husband. This woman has been unfaithful to her husband and she has been left by this husband who she has been unfaithful to. And God says, yes, I was angry, rightly so, for a moment. Yes, I deserted you, rightly so, for a period of time. Because you broke the relationship between us. And this relationship cannot be fixed. But there'll be one who does. He says, we need grace for that which we cannot do. We need grace for that which we cannot fix. And the last picture is of a city being established. We need grace for that which we cannot overcome. You see, the city of Jerusalem had just experienced tragedy, difficulty. It had been overrun by a Babylonian king. It had been destroyed. The temple was burnt down. The walls were destroyed. There it is, the city lying in ruins saying, we can't overcome our enemies. If anybody comes against us right now, no doubt we'll be defeated. What in your life can't you do? What have you broken that you can't fix and what enemies or challenges do you know that if they come after you you will be overcome you can't defeat them you see it's in this moment where you realize your inability to do things to fix things to overcome things that are greater than you it's at this very moment while challenging and difficult slightly overwhelming which kind of just rubs up against our human pride that you actually need to come to to realize you need grace you can't live without grace and it is the wonderful tenderness of god to provoke you to provide for you the information that you do need grace 
it would actually be God lacking mercy on us to let us live our entire lives under the delusion that we are self-sufficient, self-made individual people that do it by our own power. In fact, if you go from birth to death and you hit your deathbed and you think, I did this all on my own, God has not told you yet. You need to know that you need His grace. The second thing this text tells you is who provides this grace. Woven through all of these stories is this great picture of who God is. And if we're going to hunker into something, hunker down into something for this lesson, I want you to get this. Because I think the one area that Satan attacks the most often is the nature of who God is who gives us grace. Christians fail to relate to God properly because they forget who he is. They don't know who he is. They're misguided on who he is. And so you and I must know who this giver of grace is. The first thing we need to know is his capacity, what he's able to do. Look down in verse 5, it says this. Here's what I want you to know. Your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, meaning he is the greatest. He is the highest. There is no other God like him. Power reserved for none other than his name and his name alone. He says there in verse 5 that the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth, he is called. His capacity is not limited. Whatever you can imagine God being able to do, it's beyond that. It's bigger than that. It's greater. You need to understand, first and foremost, the capacity that God has to do things that he wants to do. It's great. It's grand. It's beyond anything you can imagine. And when you sit and dwell upon that and come to terms with, he is the greatest force, the greatest being in this world, then you can come to the second part of who he is. Not just his capacity, but his character. His character. Now, in verses 6 through 10, he tells you a lot about his character. He says he's the Lord who has deserted you for a brief moment. Like a wife, he's saying, you're the wife who has been unfaithful to this relationship, and rightly so, he has left you, he has deserted you. But he's, So he's a God of integrity, anger, meaning sin makes him angry, which we like, which we want. None of us would want to serve a God that is not bothered by sin. Can you imagine for a moment me being married to Lisa, and in this moment, somebody doing something to Lisa to harm her, somebody, somebody sinning against her, and me being indifferent towards it. Like, eh, she'll be all right. That would offend you, right? You'd be like, wait, wait a minute. You're her husband, and, and somebody's offending her. Somebody's sinning against her. That should anger you because the anger that I would have for her would be representative of my love for her. Do you see that? God is angry at sin. He let Judea go into dispersion because he was angry at their indifference. He's a God of integrity. That's his character. But he's also a God of compassion. He says, yes, I left you. For a moment, I hid my face from you. But look at verse 8. With everlasting love, I have compassion on you. He comes back. And as a redeeming, loving husband, he provides for all we need, fueled by everlasting love. He comes and he gathers all that we left. He's faithful to this covenant of peace, he says. In verse 15, look what he says in verse 15. Don't miss this. If anyone stirs up strife with you, that next line says this, it is not from me. You catch that? It is not from me. 
How many times do we attribute to God the strife that comes into our life? Something bad happens and we blame him. Something happens that we don't like, that's unfortunate, that's a difficult circumstance, and we look to the heavens and say, if you really cared about me, if you really loved, you'd make this a lot easier, a lot better. He says, that strife that you have, that frustration you have, I promise you, that's not my character. That might be you being frustrated about something selfish that you wanted you didn't get. That might be you being grumpy about something you don't like happening. But this strife that you have is not my character. My character is of integrity and compassion. He says, lastly, look, go back to verse 5. You need to know his capacity, that he has the power to do what he pleases. You need to know his character, that he wields that power with integrity and compassion. But you need to know his connection to you. Because of his servant, after chapter 53, this suffering servant who made right all that we made wrong, look what happens in verse 5. He says, your maker is now your husband. Look how God views himself with you now. He doesn't just see himself as an impersonal power, this powerful being that is impersonal, that is disconnected. Some of us may envision God that way, that he's this powerful being that is so far removed from us. He is this power that is so intimately personal. He says, I'm your maker, but I'm also your husband. I'm married to you. That means I govern over you, but I guide you and I protect you. I provide for you. I'm intimate with you. We're close. The two are no longer two. We are one. How many of you are standing still afar off from God, afraid of him? Afraid to get close? Afraid to let him know you and let him see you? Afraid to get to know him and take time for him? Are we indifferent towards the marriage that we're into with God right now through Jesus Christ? Are we cold towards it? Are we investing into it? He says, I am not just your maker, I'm your husband. But secondly, in verse 5, he says, I'm the Holy One of Israel, but I'm also your Redeemer. This means that he is holy, separate from sin, but he's not separate from us anymore. The word Redeemer was a very common word that was used when Isaiah was writing. We don't really think much of it today, but we still practice it to a certain degree. A Redeemer was for a woman who would lose her husband, the next of kin in her family would be called by the law of God to redeem her, which means if she is left alone, that you would bring her into your family, you would care for her, you would provide for her financially, you would take care of this woman, you would be her redeemer. A great story is the story of Ruth, who is left without her husband, and her next of kin, Boaz, redeems her, means makes her uh, his wife and takes care of her. And God says, yes, I was separate from your sin, but I'm not separate from you anymore. You were poor, you were impoverished, you were alone, but I came for you. This is like finding out Warren Buffett times Bill Gates is your closest relative and all of his inheritance is yours. That perked your eyes up a little bit, right? In a cosmic sense, greater than Warren or Bill, if you are in Jesus Christ, the one looking after you, the one guaranteeing for you, the one securing your tomorrow is greater than Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, and every other power you could think of bringing all their influence to help you. It's greater than that. But do you trust it? 
You see, when you get grace, you got to know the last part. That is the power of grace. So we know the purpose. You and I need it. We are without power. We see the provider for grace. This is who he is. And I think you got to relate to him as a grace-filled, compassionate God. But when you get it, here's what happens. Two things happen when you understand grace. It changes you in two ways. Number one, you get complete cleansing. Complete cleansing. Here's what I mean by that. Like a deserted wife, he says in verse through 10, I left you, rightly so, but I came back for you, and I have compassion on you. He says in verse, seven, verse 9, pardon me, this is just like the days of Noah. You remember the story of Noah, where the whole world had gone crazy. They had turned their back on God, and yet God finds righteous Noah, his wife, and his three sons, and their wives, and he builds an ark, and they crawl into the ark, and God shuts the door, and God wipes the face of the earth out of evil, and then God makes a promise. Do you remember the promise? I will never, ever flood the earth again. And we have the rainbow in the sky, and it promises us that. How many of you have lived through a world flood? Anybody? Has God broken his promise yet? He's saying, me coming to you, me redeeming you, my compassion, my mercy, my love for you is just like when I promised to the earth with Noah. Will God break his promise to cleanse you and to redeem you? He will not break that promise. Just like the days of Noah, he will not break that promise. He says, I will not be angry. Look down in verse 10. He says in verse 9, This is like the days of Noah. I swore that the waters of Noah should no longer go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you. Do you believe this? That God is not and will not be angry with you in Jesus Christ. He says in verse 10, the mountains could depart, the hills could be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. My covenant of peace will not be removed. Here's what he's saying. When you are saved by grace, you can be sure that you're saved. But if you are saved by your works, by your righteousness, by what you do, you'll never be sure. So, so many people in life in Christianity walk around nervous if they're saved, scared if God accepts them. And all of that is, is, is testifying to you that really who you trust is you, not God, to save you. If Jesus Christ was who he said he was, did what the Bible tells us he did, and God's promises are true, if you are in Jesus Christ, you can have certainty that you're his child. And you need to stop living under the delusion of Satan that you need to be scared of God. Okay? So if you understand grace the right way, it completely cleanses you but it does this second thing for you. It gives you a stable confidence. A kind of sure footing that no job, no house, no family, no money can give you. The kind of footing that you're looking for in life that when you say in your life so often, if I get this, then I'll be okay. The moment this happens for me, all of life will come together. God is a kind of stable confidence that says, even if this doesn't happen, I know I'm okay. Look how he describes this down in verse 14. He says, In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear. Fearless. Living your life fearless. That's exactly what God wants for us. 
He says in verse 2 that we should live fearlessly so that we are unhindered. He says in verse 2, enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitation be stretched out. Don't hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. He's saying, go for it. Make your tent bigger. What he's saying is, because you know of how gracious I am to you, how much I love you, stop being afraid. Hindered in your life. Stop walking through life saying, I'm so scared of what's going to happen tomorrow. The God of the universe with the greatest capacity, with the truest character, has the closest connection to you. He's saying, stop, be afraid. Go for it. He says that we can be unhindered. In verse 4, he tells us, crucially, look at this. You can be unashamed. Verse 4 says this, fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood that's the time that god was separate from us you won't remember that anymore so many christians live in the identity of their sin they don't let it go so many christians stay reminded by satan of all that they've done wrong all that they can't do remember all the reasons we need grace the things you can't do the things you can't fix the things you can't secure satan wants you to be afraid of what you can't do what you can't fix what you can't secure and when you live in that fear that gives you all of your identity i'm so afraid of what i can't do what i can't fix all the failures i've had all the mistakes i've made and he says listen inside of grace when you trust the servant of god and not yourself anymore you are fearless and you'll forget that shame finally you'll live in a brand new identity unleashed unhindered unashamed to go do what here's what you've been called to do to declare to every person in the world who is captive of sin there is a grace that frees you that liberates you God isn't promising unlimited confidence for your financial investments, the next career move you have, a relationship you should shoot your shot for. He's not promising that. All those things may come in your life, but what he is inviting you to is to experience the unbelievable release from the eternal consuming weight of your sin that all of us have, knowing that we are not what we should be and ashamed of who we are, and to find grace in the arms of Christ's love and sacrifice. And when you experience that and it releases the burden of your heart and you say to God, thank you so much for redeeming me, God invites you into the joy of sharing that with another burdened soul in your life. That's why he's saying go for it. In your own unique way, you'll experience the greatest joy to share with somebody acceptance, to share with someone love, to share with someone compassion and mercy and grace. That's what you've been invited in to do. That's the fullness of life that you may be missing. And it's found only in grace. So if you need this marvelous grace, we're going to stand and sing this song with Rodney. You can come and let's stand and sing together.